0: Amen. Can we thank them again for leading us in worship this morning? Yeah. We are about to start a five-week series on the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, that's a good place for you to go. If you are unfamiliar with Esther, you are not alone. Neither are most preachers. It's It's after the book of Nehemiah. It's right before the book of Job. If those words don't help you, go towards the middle, and you will find Esther eventually. And as you're turning there... This is a story that is unfamiliar to many of us, myself included. Uh, We, As I've spent time in this book over the last three, four weeks, I've been completely encouraged by what God teaches us from his word in, in a story where his name is not mentioned. So it's a very odd thing about Esther. It's the only book in the entire Bible that does not mention the name of God and Jared and I were actually having a conversation as to how to move into our fall year. If you're unfamiliar with Grace Bible, we run a calendar year September to September. Uh, we start the new year fiscally in September because really what we begin to see as a church is uh, guests will show up in September, and it, it's a pretty unique thing for us for most churches. So we want to make sure that we're coming alongside of that. So for the month of August, we're hoping to come alongside of you and shepherd you well. You were handed a couple of things today when you walked in. One of those is the worship guide, and that gives you an outline. If you have the worship guide in your hand, participate with me and hold that up right now. Okay, for those of you who do not have one, it was because your hands were full of coffee and donuts, and I'm okay with that. Uh, another thing you were handed today, as you were as you walked in, was not a worship guide but a devotional guide. If you've got that in your hand, there, we just hold that up so I can see it. Uh, Jared and I decided that we would uh, partner together and write devotions based on the themes that we see throughout the Book of Esther. And I texted him two days ago, and I said. Jared, I simultaneously want to do this with every sermon I preach as well as never want to do this ever again. So that's kind of where I am with this, but I'm grateful for the book. I'm grateful for you. So we're going to look at this story and we're going to consider the fact that God is working in the shadows here and he's not got a whole lot that he's working with when you read through the book. Anybody ever been there where you don't really know You just look around at your situation and you say, what in the world am I working with? You look at your employees or the people who work alongside of you and you realize that you are surrounded by doofuses and you say to yourself, what in the world am I working with? Jared says it about me regularly. do you realize in the middle of house cleaning that rather than cleaning and dusting and making up their beds, one of your children has drop-kicked another? At, what am I working with? Uh, a wife may see the ineptitude of her husband in regard to fixing things in the house. This is not a biography. but when, And she may say, What in the world am I working with? That's what we find in the book of Esther. When we consider God, the providential mover in all things, that he looks and we see these various people. I'm careful not to use the word characters because they're actual people. And when God looks at these people, they aren't great. They're not the best people that you could ever find. They are difficult and jaded and sometimes a little bit shady. And if we're looking at this book of Esther and we're considering who these people are, we have to ask the same questions as we consider God's providence and how he works in all things even through people who don't seem to be very much aligned with his will that God would work in and through people who do not even trust in him That God would work through people who have chosen their own convenience and their own upstanding in the community as opposed to being uh, used as vessels of God, though they belong to him. So if you're unfamiliar with the history of the book, that's okay. Let me give us just a little bit of background. When we look at the story of Esther, you've got a king. His name is Ashahazarus, and that's very hard to say because it sounds like a dinosaur. So when we look at that, that's not really his name. It is a title in the same way that if you look in the New Testament, you see the name Caesar, that's a title. It's a word that they would use for king. Most historians believe that this is a man named King Xerxes. You've more than likely heard of King Xerxes. Xerxes is the ruler of Persia, and as you look at the history of Persia, they have just taken over from Babylon. Now, while we don't know the story of Esther, we do know the story of Daniel. And the story of Daniel is a story of a group of Jewish people who were thrown into exile, and they have to figure out how to live in this new place, how to react to all that is is happening to them. We see the story of Daniel and how he won't eat at the king's table we see Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and they're thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not step away from what they believe God would have them to do we see later in the book of Daniel how Daniel is thrown into a lion's den because he keeps praying to his God Daniel some have said is the antithesis of Esther because these people are not in exile when we get to Persia and the story of Xerxes as a matter of fact, these Jewish people have been sent back to their homelands. And the ones who are choosing to live there are choosing so of their own fruition. They are choosing to not go back to the land that God had promised them and to remain in a land of convenience because they like the convenience of it. They're choosing to stay where they are and and to bow down to a king Right there in his midst, they're choosing to take Persian names and Persian dress. They're choosing not to be any different than the world they live in at all. I love the story of Esther, and I've grown to love it even more because the story of Esther is the story of us. It's the story of a people who live in a world that is not ours, yet we have to, we find ourselves compromising to what it forces us to compromise to. We love the idea of nobility. When we look at the story of royal things and the stories of kings and queens, we tie ourselves to that. The story of Esther is not a noble story. It's the story, though, of the invisible hand of God intervening because the visible hand of their king keeps fumbling and making mistakes. Tony Evans is a pastor in Dallas, and he refers to this idea as when he defines providence, the hand of God in the glove of history. We look and we see uh, that when we read through the story of Esther, New Testament commentator Karen Job says this, Beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither or explained nor thwarted God at work when we don't see God at work the book of Esther never mentions God as we said earlier and if the Bible is God's autobiography how in the world is he missing from this chapter I'm not completely sure because I am not inerrant nor am I authoritative but as we read through this story I'm reminded that there are moments in each and every one of our lives where it does not seem that God is there anybody ever felt like that? you're in church and I know we don't typically confess to things like this but if you could raise your hand to let me know you have had moments in your own life where you did not feel as if God was there can we just know we're there together? great So Esther is good for us because Esther is about us. Let's read together. We're going to work through this, and I'm going to mispronounce numerous Persian names, and we're going to have fun with it. There will be moments where I ask for you guys to say things because I want to emphasize the various players in the book who are more important than others. So again, these events, verse 1, took place during the reign of King Ahasuerus, Xerxes. I will call him that from this point forward. Everyone say Xerxes. Xerxes. Who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the nation of Persia, it is modern-day Iran, some say. But at this point in history, it would span from Egypt to Ethiopia. That's a pretty big kingdom. In those days, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. Susa is not where he reigns all of the time. Susa is his summer home. So if we're considering kingdoms, Xerxes has a pretty grand kingdom. If you've got a a summer home, you're doing well. If you've got a condo, you're doing pretty well. So he has a summer kingdom. And this summer kingdom is magnificent. In this kingdom, he holds a feast in the third year of his reign for all of his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He, display, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 Days Now, I am no mathematician, nor do I put calendars together. But this is a party that lasts for six months. Look. I'm all about you inviting me to things, but I'm going to give you about an hour and a half, and I'm ready to go home. My child's a little different. We went to a wedding, a renewal a couple of week, uh, last week for actually our administrative assistant and her husband. They're in Italy now. But while they're at this party, Shepard, the whole time, he wants to stay for the entirety of the party. He wants to dance. If you have Baptist history in here, dancing is okay. We have worked through it as a people. But he wants to dance. I, I'm not a dancer. He likes the candy bar that is there. He also likes the fajitas that are there. I enjoy both of those things. What I do not enjoy is dancing. But I'm sitting there ready to go. And he's like, can I stay? Can I stay? Can I stay? He eventually stays with Marty Fontenau, one of our church members. And they dance the night away. And my child now knows more moves than I ever expected him to, to know. Because I am a sire him when we read through this passage we've got a party that does not last six hours we have one that lasts for six months and the way that king xerxes caps off his six-month party is to throw another party it's the after party That's what happens, and for the next six months, rather for the next seven days, at the end of the time, verse 5, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa white and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords that's how we know it's summer all the linen to silver rods on marble columns gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar marble, mother of pearl and precious stones this is huge seven drinks were served in an array of golden goblets each with a different design. Take that, all my Houston area, Texas friends who show up at every party with a Bucky's Cup. That is uninvited. The drinking was according to royal decree. There were no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. So there are literal waiters standing there to refill the cups of the people. Six-month party, we are living in excess. And on top of the six months of excess, we have another week of excess. Is there any wonder that he's going to make some terrible decisions coming up? Because that's what we find in the story. And the reason that we find them is Xerxes is throwing this party, this six-month rager, with a a seven-day capper to get everyone who is there on board with a war he's about to have with Greece. We're going to go to war with Greece. I want you on my side. I want you supporting me. I want you to be part of my kingdom. I need you to come alongside of me. So even here, very quickly, based upon what history teaches us and the authority of Scripture, we see a king throwing a party and the reason he's throwing the party is because he does not trust himself. He does not trust his reign. He does not trust his rule. We're going to march in, and I need you to be on my side. Xerxes is the worst king that we could ever find. He, he, he is a king that is easily influenced. He is a king that is quick to uh, try to wash away the actual problems that are there with a celebration. Xerxes is the worst kind of king. Verse 10. On the seventh day when the king was feeling good from the wine. What, now when the Bible says feeling good from the wine. Can you just tell me what that means? He's drunk. And he's not just drunk. He is drunk. He is gone. Xerxes commanded... These guys, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha. If I have a friend named Bigtha, I'm calling him Big T. I do not care. Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the worst name. The seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. When you look at the story of Xerxes, you have one where a man is attempting to display his power over... Everyone who is underneath him, he wants everyone to do his bidding. He throws the party to get you on board and for you to align yourself with doing his bidding. He wants to be able to tell his wife to do whatever he wants to tell his wife to do. He does not care about her; he cares about himself. Uh, We we know uh, from the story that we're going to look at over the next few weeks that not only is he asking everyone to do his bidding, he bidding he uses women in whatever way he chooses to use women. Not only does he choose to use women in what Whatever way he desires, he also does the same with men. He sends them to war at his bidding. For those of the men, for those men who were closest to him, he declared that they had to be eunuchs because if you spent with him, he was so insecure and so incompetent that he had a fear that one of his wives or concubines would leave him if one of these men happened to be attractive enough so they were castrated. This is the smallest of men, and he is in the largest kingdom in the world at the time. How easily influenced are we? Look, this story takes place over ten years, and if we're not careful, we can look at it in the way that we look at the story of a Disney princess, but, but it's not that. It's much more wicked than that, much more heinous than that. And we can think that every story should stop and every story should end in an hour and 20 minutes because when we read through this book, it doesn't take that long to read through the story of Esther. This is a 10-year period. You have this man's incompetence leading a kingdom for 10 years. This story goes throughout the, much of the Bible. Incompetence reigning. Incompetence ruling. Go get Vashti. And make sure she's wearing her crown. So he sends these eunuchs in to get her. And she knows that there is a party that's been going on for 187 days. And her reply is this. No, I'm not going in there historians believe that not only did he want them to bring Vashti to him they believe that he wanted her to bring Vashti uh, on their shoulders so that everyone who is sitting there at the party can look as she is put on display and many believe that when it says that she was going to be wearing a crown that's all that she would be wearing that this man was going to take his wife and make a spectacle of her that's how inept Xerxes was That's how much Xerxes was attempting to manipulate every situation for his own good, his own gain, and his own glory. How often are we manipulating situations for our own good, our own gain, and our own glory? Thankfully, he's not the only king at work. Proverbs says this about the Lord. I love it. 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. There there are two words really at play as you look through the Bible that we see. We love the story uh, when we read through Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. What we have historically understood that to be as New Testament Christians, it's it's sovereignty. that God reigns and God rules. And that's what sovereignty is. God is doing what only God can and only what God wants to do. There is another word that comes alongside of that. And that is the word providence. If sovereignty is God doing what God will do, uh, providence is how God will do it. So we look at the story of, of Xerxes and of all that's taking place in his kingdom. And you have Vashti here who does not, when you look at her, <laughs> she doesn't want to go. And she says no. She doesn't have actual right to say no but because we are free moral agents she says no to the king and this causes a problem for the king and it causes a problem for his advisors and the problem that's caused for them is ultimately this uh she is uh, she's telling him no and in telling him no they look and they see the situation and they decide that can't be how a kingdom works She can't say whatever she wants to say. She can't do whatever she wants to do. She can't be whatever she wants to be. No, cannot mean anything to us. Verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times. And I just have to put it in that because I'm not sure if they really understand the times because they're about to tell this woman something, uh, him something about this woman that is completely unacceptable. For it was his normal procedure to confer with the experts of law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admarta. Tarshish, Marys, Marciona, and Mimican. That's also a horrible name. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and they occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. And the king asked, this is still at the party and everyone is still drinking because that's the best time to make our decisions. According to the law, what should be done with Vashti? Since she, refused to, since she refused to obey King Xerxes' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. And the reply of the gentleman, the eunuchs, is, Mimikan said in the presence of the king, Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and all the peoples who are in, who are in every one of King Xerxes' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes orders Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and media who hear about the king's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials. Xerxes, they're going to rebel? And there's going to be a complete and total breakdown of proper domestic order. And the final question is ultimately, do you really think we need a nation full of angry women? The answer to that, regardless of the nation, is no. No. 19. If it meets the king's approval, this is what you should do. Still, marry with wine. He's making this decision. Let it be recorded in the laws of of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Xerxes' presence. And her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom. So all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. In the grand scheme of things, they may be bowing down in fear before their husbands when this is passed, but there is in no way, shape, or form they're honoring their husbands. We don't force things. What an unhealthy way to look at marriage. What an unhealthy way to look at your kingdom. What an unhealthy way to look at your queen. Xerxes is a terrible, easily influenced king who cares more about the crown than the kingdom. You're given influence. What you do with that influence is incredibly important. What we do with what God gives us says much about what we think about God. But even in this story of Xerxes mistreating, not caring for his wife nor his kingdom, we see that there is a greater king at work. And it is in this terrible, heinous removal of Vashti that we see God orchestrating the freedom of his people, orchestrating the safety of those who belong to him. If the terrible removal of Vashti does not happen... Esther does not become queen. If Esther does not become queen, then Haman eradicates the Jewish people in Persia. And there were 15 million of them. So we have this whole story of this terrible king, but but it says this in in chapter 2. Go there with me. Since sometime later, when King Xerxes' rage had cooled down, when he calmed down, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was, what was decided against her? He has moved from party to Prozac. He has calmed himself down. And the king's personal attendant suggested this. Here is how we're going to fix the mistake that you made. We're going to ignore it altogether. And we're going to find you a newer queen. A better queen. We're going to re- replace Maleficent with Cinderella. That's what we're going to do in this story. I don't know if those are the appropriate Disney princesses for that lineup, but I went with it. Verse 3, Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem of the fortress of Susa. So put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, more eunuchs, keeper of the women, and give them the required treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Law goes out to the entire town. To the entire kingdom. I want you to bring me your best of the best. The prettiest of the pretty. We're going to declare a new queen. We're going to have an episode of The Bachelor. And I'm the bachelor. We're going to make this happen in our kingdom. I cannot wait. Is the idea behind Xerxes' thought? And the Bible says in verse 5, In the fortress of Susa, summer kingdom, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai. Mordecai is Jewish, but we don't know that by his name because he has compromised himself to the rules of the Persians. He is Persian in all, for all intent and purposes. Son of Shemaiah, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. He's been there for a minute. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah. Hadassah is the name of Mordecai's cousin, that, and we also know her as Esther. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, the Jewish word for hidden. Esther is her Persian name, which is the Persian word for star. So the story of Esther is the story of a hidden star. But she's as compromised as her uncle is. We, we princess her up, and that's great, but there's a wickedness to this story because she's still there. And she's about to make decisions in, in light of the kingdom uh, and the king Xerxes that are unacceptable. She she does not say no, even though her life would be at risk. She's about to be mistreated and manipulated. Mordecai was her legal guardian. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was extremely good-looking. Esther, one, one translation says, was beautiful in form and face. A uh, poet Theodore Rethke would, would describe her as lovely in her bones. Edgar Allan Poe might say about Esther that the moon never dreams without bringing me dreams of Esther. The Commodores would tell us that she's a brick house. Esther is a big deal. She's beautiful. She's we should love and care for her, but she's been adopted. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace and to the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. What a terrible title. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. This is serious business to make sure that she is the most beautiful queen ever, which is a hard thing to do because the Bible tells us that Vashti was beautiful. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. But Mordecai told Esther not to reveal her ethnicity or her background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening there. Verse 12. During the year before each young woman's turn to King Ahasuerus, the Xerxes, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of of myrrh for six months. Six months of oil of myrrh. Then six months of perfume and cosmetics. I, this is basically how prom works now. Six months of myrrh, six months of perfume, six months of rodan, six months of fields. That's what we're having. When the young woman would go to the king, she was to do whatever was requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. Esther is going to go into the presence of Xerxes. Xerxes. And every woman who has entered into the presence of Xerxes has been used by him, has been mistreated by him, has not been loved nor cared for by him. They exist as objects for this king because everything that this king sees and views, he thinks is an object. Every person at his disposal, every person that he interacts with is someone seeking to serve his ultimate purpose and his ultimate gain. Esther is no different. This compromise. Young lady is in a terrible, terribly compromising situation, and she can die because that's what Daniel would do. She she could be thrown into the furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would do, but she did not do that. We see ourselves in the story of Esther because we can see ourselves compromising to the whims and woes of the world that we live in. And if you don't see yourself compromising to those whims and woes, then you're more than likely compromised right now. We do it regularly. She was taken to him in the 12th month, in the 7th year of his reign. Verse 17, but but the king was infatuated with her. He loved Esther more than any of the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and he made her queen in the place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was called Esther's Banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Again, Esther has chosen to make, or rather, Xerxes has made Esther about him. So here's what's happening with the rest of these ladies. Because remember, this has been going on for a while and all these women have been brought to him and guys, orchestrated for Esther to be the most beautiful. The rest of them were banished. They were placed into another area. They were part of the harem of King Xerxes. And while they were in this harem, they were not allowed to take husbands. They were not allowed to interact with men in any way whatsoever. They could not be loved. They were just going to be used. If Xerxes chose to bring one of them back, it was okay. But if he didn't, that just meant they let, they would live in his captivity forever. This king manipulating. This king misunderstanding. This king mistreating. This king choosing to do what... Things that would only please and bring satisfaction to him. This king orchestrating all of this. But we have something taking place with this all-powerful king of the, of the Medes and the Persians. We have this situation happening on the outskirts of town where Xerxes is being talked ill of by those who serve him. Verse 19. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai, her uncle, he was sitting at the gate. Just so happened to be there. Esther had not revealed her family background or ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed his orders as she always had while he raised her. During these days... While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan, not to be confused with Bigtha, because I know you were, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, they became infuriated, and they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. Friends, do you see the moving pieces in this passage? When we look at this text, we have the story of a king who is... Far too easily influenced by his circle of people that he spends his time with. But he does view himself as all powerful. And he believes that his reign matters more than anything. He has thrown a six month and, and seven day party so that everyone would get on board with all that he's doing and all that he's thinking. He has made every decision that he can make so that he would be all that he was supposed to be in the eyes of all of these people. Wickedness reigns and rules in his heart. He, however, believes himself to be all-powerful, yet he needs intervention. And that intervention takes place in Esther chapter 2 when Mordecai just so happens to be on the outskirts of town, on the outskirts of the king's gate, and while he's sitting there, he hears a discussion of the assassination of King Xerxes. And he does what only he can do. Because oh, look at all the things that have just so happened in this book. Mordecai just so happened to be sitting there. Because Vashi just so happened to not be going into the king's chamber when he told her to. Because she just so happened to not want to be made a spectacle of. All of these just so happenings taking place in this passage. His niece who lived with him just so happened to be living with him. Because her mom and dad just so happened to die all of these things being orchestrated and here we find ourselves in a place where the only person who can who can do anything to save her is this man who just so happens to be here because eventually God will just so happen to use her even in a greater way there is no just so happen god's at work in this god is orchestrated these things so that Mordecai can be there and overhear this conversation to assassinate a, a, a king who thinks he's the most important thing on earth and he just so happens to be able to report to the only person who would have the attention of the king he needs to be saved. But the king's still terrible. He's still a horrible person. He's immobilized by his decrees. That's why Vashti can't come back to his kingdom He is oblivious to the idea of death that surrounds him. His whole goal in all of his life is to be the most important person in all of forever. And at that point in history, he was. But we see shadows in this book of a bigger, better story. The story of a king who is way different. Because our king is not immobilized by his decrees about what he's going to do. He actually mobilizes himself to offer us pardon. His decrees and his pardon line up completely. And we do not have a king who is so oblivious that we have to protect him from death. We actually have a king who is so powerful that he uses his own death to protect us. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way, that we should adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this very reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God points to Jesus as we look at the story of Esther that doesn't happen to mention him. How is your story pointing to Jesus? Because every one of us are getting met in this book. As we're spending the next few weeks looking at the ten years of the reign of Xerxes and his wife Esther, we're going to see where God happens to meet us here. We're going to see God meeting us in the middle of our compromise and calling us to something far more important. We're going to see God seeking after and showing himself to us in places we do not expect to see him. We're going to hear the voice of God where we have no mention of the voice of God. We're going to see God working, see God moving, see God shaking things out for the sake of his good, and our good, and his glory. This book reminds us of how good our God is because God is such a good God that he doesn't have to be mentioned to be powerful. Our God is that good. And he is working in you and he is working through you. And right now, in the middle of all of your struggle and all of your situation, you have these just so happen moments that are there. You just so happen to work with a young man or a young woman who is dealing with terrible situations at home. You just so happen to be working with someone or spending time with someone who has been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. You just so happen to be walking through all of the things and all of the, and all of the ways that, that you deal with life. You just so happen to be seeing and noticing that your neighbors, it doesn't seem like everything is right across the street. You just so happen to be noticing these things. Those are not just so happens. They're the providence of God calling you in the same way that he calls Mordecai here to respond, in the way that we will see him call Esther to respond later. You're where you are because God has placed you there. There is no just so happen. God is working, God is ordaining, God is moving. God is moving in the lives of his people. And he's calling us to confront all of our Xerxes reflections, because every one of us have them. And all the places that we would look and see that Mordecai or Esther falls short of who he is, because all of us do. Yet God chooses to use them anyway. Because God works beyond the just so happens. Would you do this for me this morning? I invite you to bow your heads. These next few weeks are given to us so that we would consider the opportunities that God places in our lives, the co workers that we don't like to be around. The neighbors that we don't know. The conversations that we don't want to have. They are also to help us to confront our Xerxes moments. Where we have declared that we are a king when in actuality we are nothing but a pawn. I would love for you to take these moments to consider your next few weeks. In light of this very interesting story about a God who seems to be missing and just remember and be reminded that he's there that there is no mistake that is greater than his, him using us that our failures don't get to define us because we actually are defined as his people through the death and resurrection of his son What are your just-so-happens? And are we going to be willing to find God in them? And see that he's there and has been the whole time. If you need me, you've never placed your, your trust in Jesus, that, that means that you have a king who is going to fail you. And your only hope is to trust in the king who will not. We do that by placing our faith in Jesus through his shed blood and through his broken body. Through his resurrection. If you've never trusted Christ, it is saying simply, Jesus, I need you to be my king because I'm not very good at it. Jesus, I want you to save me. I'll be at the back of the room if you want to have that conversation in full. But for those of us who are here this morning, who are believers in Jesus, as we sing, can you evaluate what's taking place around you right now that God is designing and declaring to use you through? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Speak to us as we sing. Speak to us as we pray. We ask it in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. King Jesus.